Welcome to the B2B Category Creators Podcast, hosted by Gil Alouche, founder and CEO of Metadata.io. This podcast is all about sharing the real and sometimes edgy secrets of B2B software creation. On today's episode, we have David Cancel, CEO of Drift, and Henry Shuck, CEO and co-founder of Zoom Info. Happy Friday. Thank you for joining. This is really cool. <laughs> yeah, I feel uh, very lucky to have both of you uh, OGs here uh, on the podcast. Henry, congratulations, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's, uh, right now into the hard work. Feels like a lot more work just stacked up, but um, <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> but a good moment. I'm assuming you're referring to the IPO. Yes. Yeah. And, so. and the many acquisitions afterwards. Yeah, all of it, yes. all the things. Definitely, we're going to talk about that. So I'm excited. I'm very excited about this uh, this episode. If you don't, uh, if you can't tell, uh, my name is Gil Alush. I'm the founder and CEO of Metadata. This is the fourth episode of Category Creators Podcast. I have with me David Kensel, the founder of Drift, as well as Henry Shook, the founder and CEO of uh, Zoom Info, who recently IPO'd. I would love to start with introduction. Um, David, maybe you can go first. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, thanks for having me. I don't know where to start. Uh, uh, I've started in a number of companies in marketing and sales. I grew up in New York um, and never knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur because when I grew up, entrepreneur meant uh, you can't get a job. So like all I, knew, all I wanted to do was to create things and make something out of nothing. And that's what's led me here. I'm on my fifth company now called Drift and definitely my last. So no more after this. <laughs> no <laughs> way. I don't buy it. <laughs> no, man. No, I'm tired, <laughs> no, me man. neither. <laughs> yeah. I'm tired and old. Henry, maybe you can also give a, a quick introduction about yourself. Sure. My name is Henry Shuck. I'm the founder and CEO of Zoom Info. Founded the company was originally called Discover Org when I was uh, 23 years old. I was in my uh, first year of law school at Ohio State University in Columbus. Grew it without any outside capital through 2014, from 2007 to 2014. Brought on a couple of private equity investors, did a handful of uh, M&A transactions, and then uh, went public in June of this year. And uh, so today we're a 1,500-employee company based uh, in Boston and Vancouver, Washington. Um, And really big total addressable market that we're excited to go after. Amazing. You tell the story so simply, it sounds like you just did it like a few minutes. You started a company in law school, some, some things happened and then you <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's you can, the fast track story. You can tell that Henry's company is from Boston because he's got a flannel on and a, a uh, vest on. <laughs> I like to give away my, my, uh, the company location with my wardrobe. Very interesting. You know, I want to hear a lot about uh, how you started the companies. You know, Henry, you started talking about you being, I think, second year in uh, law school and then bootstrapping, you know, a d- data company, if you will. I remember Discover Org uh, in the early days. You were the most expensive, uh, one of the most expensive data sources. You had two things that were very really interesting, if I remember correctly, the direct dials and the org charts. You know, really curious, what, how, how is that start? I mean, how is a, a second year law school student starts a, a database company? It's a little bit uh, not as exciting as you probably would hope for with the, with the, the condensed version of the story. But I had worked at a, sim, at a similar company when I was an undergrad. I was, uh, just finished my first year in undergrad at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. 
And I, my mom, when I went to college, gave me a $5,000 like life insurance check. You know, like if you buy life insurance, it's like the remnants of it that you can cash out every few years. And that was my college fund. And so I took it, I used it up in the first year. And then on my way out of uh, my first year in uh, college, I took a job that I found on a job board at a SaaS company that was selling online subscriptions to uh, data on information technology decision makers. And I started there in 2002 and worked there from 2002 to 2006. The company grew from about 300,000 in revenue as a real lifestyle business to 5 million in revenue as a real lifestyle business. (laughs) So it was myself and the CEO and kind of two other kind of college aged employees. And then we just weren't really building a business around it. So I left, uh, the company got sold to private equity. And then a year into law school, uh, we decided to start a company that competed, but wasn't exactly in the same space. But it, you know, those four years gave me the opportunity to really see how a business works. I understood the space. I had seen how you sell the contracts, what an annual subscription was, you know, what the importance of having it be recurring, how the business worked, how you talk to sales leaders. So it was just an incredible four years of experience. And frankly, the fact that he didn't build a company around it was actually much better for me because I got to see like literally how everything worked across kind of just four people. Um, and so just an incredibly valuable learning experience that, that we just kind of leveraged into the company. Is, the, is that early experience with the lifestyle business gave you kind of the inspiration to do bootstrap and not go the usual VC route? Well, first, I didn't know what the VC route was. You know, I was 23. I grew up in Los Angeles. I went to college in Las Vegas. I went, then I'm sitting in law school in Columbus, Ohio. And none of those places, especially in the early 2000s, had much of a VC community. And so I didn't really know like what that meant. And so I just thought that the way you run a business is with the money you have, you start it and you make it profitable so you can continue to run it. And so that's kind of what we did. And then when the company kind of grew, you started, you started hearing from VCs and private equity firms. And over time, you kind of understood how it worked. But early on, it was more like a necessity than anything else. That's cool. Very very different story for you, David. You started five companies, I think I heard you say. Tell us about uh, yeah. about that, that first one that you started and then tell us about how you started Drift. Oh, I'm not as smart as Henry. So like Henry figured it out, he dialed it in and uh, he created his company. And uh, I, mine was more of like, I always say I'm like the Forrest Gump of this. Like I stumbled my way into different groups along the way and then each one like, you know, really expanded the, my thinking, my learning and really taught me that I was capable of doing something that I didn't think was possible because, you know, I grew up in prehistory before the commercial internet. And so there was no, there were no blogs, there was no Google, there was no way to search for any of this information. So the idea of starting a company or or doing any of the things that we do today was just so, so foreign and so distant that it's, it's almost hard to explain it to anyone from, you know, who's growing up today. Like it was just like, it was, you know, inconceivable. And so I kind of like, you know, like Henry, there was one thing that overlapped. I found, I found this uh, group of three people who were founding a company in New York on a message board, a news group. Uh, many people won't remember what those things were, but back in the day, those were like Reddit is today. And so I found them and they wanted to start this company and they were looking for someone, none of them coded. And, and so they were looking for someone uh, to help them. And so I joined them and I ended up leading technology and that became three different companies. But back then, 
you know, it's like the pirate era. No one knew how to create anything uh, on the internet in terms of applications. And so like, we always used to joke, like if you could, if you could uh, spell CGI, which was a programming interface that we used, then we, you would get hired because just no one knew about it. There were no books. There weren't, you know, if you knew about it, it was such a niche thing. So that led me to creating applications. And then I moved to Boston and uh, started my first company in uh, October of 2000 in um, called Compete, which was also in the data business. And, you know, worst time to start a company because it was post bubble 2000. And then it was pretty hard. And then it got really hard. Uh, a year later, September 11th, of, you know, 2001, uh, got really hard. And then by 0304, like things started to really go because uh, the world discovered PPC and the world so much was moving on to digital advertising that the da- the kind of data business that we were doing was really relevant. And then we sold that business in 06, 07 to WPP. Very cool. And, um, yeah. you know, it's really fascinating the both of you, uh, although you're now you're Silicon Valley unicorns, you are not at all from here. And uh, I can, I really can appreciate that. You know, you're right. Like VC Rock was not available and you're talking about like bulletin boards and, and helping to build some... Uh, <laughs> some CGI scripts. This is a uh, yeah. cool. Yet the way you you both evolved in building uh, in a multi-billion-dollar company is, uh, is is quite interesting. Cheers, guys. Oh yeah. One of the luckiest things I think that happened to me <clears throat> on this journey was before we took uh, private equity money in in 2014. I had gone through like a cycle with another private equity firm, and I remember being like you know, you're really intimidated is that my first time through the thing. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what they wanted to hear from me, what they didn't want to hear. And I knew that like on the other side of our conversations was a big check of money. And so you're like, really want to just tell them kind of like what they want to hear. At least like yeah. that was the lens with which I was looking at it through. And so they would, they asked like, uh, well, Henry, what do you want to do? You know, like we come in, we make an investment. What do you want to do? And I th- thought that they wanted to hear like kind of whatever you want me to do you know like if you want to bring in a ceo and you want me to to play like a a secondary role i'm good like you want to put a like you want to put multi-millions of dollars in my pocket i'll do whatever you want me to do and that's kind of what i said i was like look i think i i have a lot of skills here you know but you know you guys tell me what you're looking to do so then they started like introducing me to other ceos um, cause they're like, okay, we're going to make the investment and then we're going to bring in another CEO. And so here are some people who can be the next CEO of your company. And I was like, just, a, you know, in my head, I was just like, okay with that. I was like, you know, you're going to make a bunch of money and they're going to bring in this next guy and you know, you go, go do something else or whatever else it is you want. And like the luckiest thing that ever happened to me in my life is that like, that didn't happen. Like it didn't work out. The deal didn't work out. <laughs> And it gave me an opportunity to like grow and evolve. And then the next set of investors who came through were like, no, 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 like you have, you're going to be the CEO, right? Like the question was a little bit different, you know, like the difference between what do you want to do and Hey, you're going to stick around and be the CEO, right? Like you're really important is, you know, it it made all the difference. And, And so I feel so lucky that I've had the opportunity to, you know, evolve and continue to do this because you know, at some point along the way, I could have just opted out. And who knows if I would ever have an opportunity to really like stretch my, my, my talents, the way I've had the, the opportunity to do. It's yeah. such an important lesson. I think everyone goes through that, like, not 
not knowing in the fundraising kind of scenario. And I was, I was, uh, my analogy is like, it's dating dynamics. It's like the last thing you want, the last thing that works in terms of, you know, in terms of dating is telling the other person exactly what they want to hear. Right. Like that's the worst. Yeah. 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 Exactly the same. (laughs) The more you think about it, it's like, it has to be the same because there are only people and relationships, right? Like those are the only dynamics. We yep. may put on like the business hat or the personal hat or the whatever hat, but there's only relationships. And so like that, telling someone what they want to hear is like the worst, worst thing. And it, I mean, it's so fortunate that you found that out. The other part of this is like people are going through this cycle in, at really young ages. I was, even at the time we were doing this, I was 29, 20, 20 29, 30. And that feels like yeah. actually older in like today's you know, cycle for having those yeah. conversations. And so mm-hmm. like my thinking about like what I saw for myself and what I saw for the company and what I wanted for like my future, it just wasn't evolved at all. And so I, I, I feel very lucky that when we, when we had private equity investment, it wasn't like a, uh, hey, here's a whole bunch of money, go figure out how to like build a major company here. It was like, hey, mm-hmm. what you're doing works, keep doing it, we're gonna invest a little bit more. And it gave me time to like grow in to the role. Mm-hmm. I imagine you, uh, when you're sitting on the other side of that table and you're 25, 26, 27, it's just, you don't really know what you want for yourself or what the right answers are. And so you kind of just mm-hmm. mess it up. Very interesting, humbling story that, uh, you know, what would have happened? I'm sure that those, you know, those investors, they always talk about, you know, having a good investor, a supporting investor. I remember when I, when I started uh, five years ago, I, I was just happy to get an investor because they have, they have money and they give the money into my bank account so I can run the company. But, uh, yep. you know, later on, you realize that you're, you're going to have a lot of conversation with those people, maybe weekly, maybe bi-weekly. They believe in you every, the end of every conversation like you know a billion dollar you're ready to go and do the next battle if they don't it's it's you know it's hard and so it's it's very interesting to uh in school to see that remember uh, dating dynamics the last thing you want to do is uh be the person that dates anyone yeah that's right (laughs) (laughs) dating dynamics is a good analogy just keep coming back to unless you happen to be exactly everything that they want and then it's okay to say that When you started, uh, Henry, you know, some, some years passed and then you got some private equity and they kept investing in you. What was the time where you decided you're the Bank of America of, uh, of data for B2B? I don't know if I ever, uh, if we ever really decided that. I'll say um, with, with any of these stories, it's easy to like kind of look at it from the outside and go like, oh my goodness, like what a great ride that must have been. Um, <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> like every day, you, you know, every day feels like whack-a-mole. When the company was smaller, I remember we were, we were growing, the company was doing really well. Um, and, I, and I remember going to like some entrepreneurial networking event and there was some other guy who ran a company that was growing, like also growing and successful. It might've been like slightly bigger than us. And I remember thinking in my head, like, wow, it must be great to be this guy. Like, he's got this great business. It's like running really well. Like, it's just growing. It just must be like the greatest thing. Because like, I knew all of the stuff that I was dealing with back at the office at Zoom Info and was like, okay, like, I'm trying to fix marketing and I'm trying to sales isn't scaling. And my, my engineering team's not as talented as I want them to be. 
But every other entrepreneur I saw through like rose colored glasses, <laughs> like their business. Well, lucky guy. He must have just the easiest time. He doesn't have to deal with my crappy engineering team or my sales team. That's not scaling or the marketing team I need to fix. And the reality is like, we all have stuff that we're trying to do better. That isn't going as well as we hoped that it would be going like, or that's not as far along as we wanted it to be at this point. I think ultimately for us along the way, um, we were just kind of really focused on building operational uh, excellence across the company and taking advantage of opportunities that were in front of us. And so along the way, I think like we became a really great B2B data provider and go-to-market intelligence provider. But I don't think like there wasn't, there was never like a moment where it just like the, the light flicked. You know, uh, David, just before uh, this episode, I was recording uh, another episode with Dave Gearhart and oh. Guillaume Caban. You probably know those folks uh, mm-hmm. as well. Uh, those two, both of them worked at Adrift. And uh, they mentioned a few interesting, like, uh, a few interesting tactics that they did. Like, for example, Dave was mentioning building a really big community, and he called it an audience. And Guillaume was mentioning uh, listening to, and Dave as well, listening to, I think, 50 sales calls until they understood all the blockers and created apps to, to, to remove those blockers. Did you orchestrate those things or, or did you hire people that you know are going to, to look at it this way? Yeah, I'd say a little both. You know, like both were kind of young in their career at the time and they definitely brought amazing talents. And so like... So much of like what we do and even that in that scenario is like um, not just being okay with just like uh, something that's just decent or pretty good or just like everyone else. And we just kept pushing on like we have to do things different. If we're going to stand out, we by definition, we have to do things that other people don't want to do. And most of them are going to fail and most of them will, you know, some of them will work and maybe they'll work. And if they do, we'll double down on those. But like we can't copy anything anyone else is doing. And so we look for. Uh, I was just obsessed with looking for role models outside of B2B because we're just at the end of the day marketing and, and communicating to humans. Again, just like the dating dynamics, in this case, uh, communication is just is the same if we're communicating in business or in you know our daily lives. And so we were just looking for models and we look at old models and models that were weren't popular anymore. And so like from a marketing standpoint and from you know getting category created, you know my my mantra internally was really this like, you know, do the things that don't scale. We wrote, a, we ended up writing a, a free book around that, like the 52 plays that we did that didn't scale. Because like we would, by definition, like if someone would say like, it doesn't scale, someone else, another company, then we would double down on that because those were things that they didn't want to do because they were messing. They were hard to measure from an attribution standpoint. Uh, they weren't, you know, at scale maybe. And so like, you know, as marketers, we, I would say that marketers want to do one thing, which is like fine you know, massively scalable channels that are perfectly measurable. But when that is true, all the arbitrage is removed out of that system, right? Like the early successes in any of those channels are the ones that moved in before it was easy to measure, before it was at scale. And so like you have to be looking for these things that are like that no one else will do because they're just so, too painful to measure or to niche at the time. And then when they hit scale and when they're perfectly measurable, that's when everyone else moves in. There's still leverage in there and there's still ways to find some pockets of arbitrage, but it becomes really, really hard at that point. So we just had this discipline over and over again of just like 
experimenting, 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 do things that no don't ever do something that someone else is doing. And so like, I'd say in that role, it was more, I was the editor and more of like the person with the guardrails of like not giving in to, to doing the easy thing. David, I heard you say a lot about, I think what you're referring to is you allowed for a lot of experimentation and finding out things that are maybe not the standard. And, you know, it's funny because I heard uh, David Guillaume mentioned that a lot, that you created a culture of experimentation where as long as the results are there, pipeline is, you know, is, is being generated, sales are, are happening and marketing gets the credit, they can try out crazy things and many of them will not work. Many of them. I, I would say it a little different. I wouldn't say like that I allowed for it. I would say like that was the only way. That was the only way we were going to operate and we wouldn't do anything else. So it was more like, it was just like the way we forced ourselves to operate um, more so than, you know, le- creating room for it. It was just the only lane we had was experiment. David, what do you think, do you have thoughts about like what, what are those early marketing plays now that are oh, that, like- That worked for us? No, like today, when you think about the world, oh, yeah. what are the things that have not like scaled yet to mass consumption that there is arbitrage opportunity around? Mm, oh, so you're asking for, for new channels. I mean, we were, we continue to look for them, uh, look for pockets of them. You know, we did all sorts of stuff. I'd say the, the one that always works, never go, that never leaves, that is, is the one that I would start at is, it's almost like Kevin Kelly wrote about like the thousand true fans. It's about one, we used to call it hand-to-hand combat at Drift in the early days, like hand-to-hand combat. We are going to reach out, we're going to communicate, we're going to get back to every single person one by one in the early days and just find someone that we think can be, become a fan or become someone that can, would be interested in what we're doing or just like, and we would do it one at a time and like email them. I would send them personally, I would send them books and t-shirts and this and that, like I was doing that. And like, you know, the thing that everyone reacts to that is like, well, that doesn't scale. That doesn't work. I'm like, that is the only thing that scales, right? Like building relationships and Henry's business is about building relationships, like building those relationships one at a time over time and over a large group of people as you grow is the only thing that scales. There's nothing else that scales. Like we act like these, um, programmatic mediums like these programmatic channels are like the key right like these things are perfectly scalable and it's like uh, I, I don't agree I think relationships are the only thing that scale at the end of the day there's a person on the other side that has to react to this thing and there's a business yeah. on the other side and so there are humans that have to interact that's the play that I would always start with which is we're just going to go one by one by one by one and the good thing is nobody almost no one is willing to do that I was helping um, uh, a business school student yesterday uh, I volunteered at a local business school and I was, and she was asking me about like, you know, getting her first, you know, 50, you know, users in this consumer app. And all she wanted to talk about was like Facebook ads and, you know, Instagram ads and this ads. I'm like, you need to go talk to 10 people. You, you want to <laughs> work behind like a screen, like a laboratory and be like, we're going to find the perfect 50 people. And it's like, you know, that is not possible. You have to find 10 people and then 20 people and then 30 people and 50 people. And you have to look for, I would say like, you have to look for someone who has emotional reaction and that emotion could be, I love what you're talking about, Gil, or that emotion could be, I hate every word that you're saying. Those things are equally as good to me. And it's like, all you're trying to find or avoid is like that trough of like, which is like the majority, the vast majority of like, uh, that they don't care. They don't hate it. They don't love it. They're indifferent. Like you avoid indifference and like, cause someone who hates what you're telling them or pitching them over time, it's pretty easy to win them over and get them to become fans. I find like if someone's indifferent, 
you can never get them over. Like in either way, they just don't care. Yep. You're talking about things that don't scale. And, and uh, you know, I remember the, the, the first 10 customers or so, right, that were either my former bosses or, or friends or friends of, of companies that I worked for or so on and so forth. You know, the idea of experimentation sometimes is, uh, is a good way to scale when you already have some good foundation. Like, for example, you're talking about having conversation and having opinion. So in, in March and in April, uh, you know, we suddenly had to face this thing uh, with some econo- economic backlash, potential economic backlash. So we did a, you know, made a quick decision and cut our burn and had to do a lot of layoffs tough period. And part of that was to tell Jason, hey, uh, I know I told you you're going to have two people. You're only going to have zero. And I know I told you you have this budget, you have a third of it. Uh, but still, the goal is the same. And so you can do anything you want. You don't have to do uh, you know, what, what we were planning on doing before because the game has changed. But see, you know, see what's possible with experimentation, to your point. He found um, an arbitrage channel, the one that I think Henry was, was trying to find some hidden gem. Uh, I think conversational ha- ads on LinkedIn became became very successful, and we actually went uh, went after LinkedIn conversational ads because we had a very successful experience with Drift. We built this pretty sophisticated playbook that seemed like uh, a modern marketer talking back, uh, with even with an opinion, and then we applied it into conversational ads. So it, it was interesting to see that once you find uh, you know the right conversations or the right uh, I don't know, four or five points that you need to make, it's possible to try to scale that. A hundred percent. Like, I, I think, you know, like getting those manual early conversations is super important because like for a whole bunch of reasons, but one thing that, that I'm always looking for is like when you start to get those people that, that love and then even the people that hate you a little bit and then you kind of win them over, I'm looking for, I'm trying to get them to express what they're looking for, what we're providing to them in their own words. And that's the key. That's what I'm. That's what I'm listening for. And once they're like a fan, and they're 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 kind of articulating back in their own words, then I'm basically that's what those words are. What I'm using in message testing in the early yep. days to get to totally. scale. Critical. I had this company performable that I sold to HubSpot, and we built this A/B testing tool in the beginning. And Sean, this guy Sean Ellis, who's like basically coin growth hacking, uh, was. Um, was basically, and he had done it for Dropbox and Zobni and all these kind of companies. And uh, anyway, he was using our platform to do it. And he was one of our advisors. And we were sitting there watching what he was doing and what he was testing early days of Dropbox. And he was literally doing that. He was finding the exact words, copy and paste, literal, that someone would say about Dropbox and then testing those against like marketing messages. And we would watch exactly what he was doing. And every single time it was those words because they were almost like this inception thing, right? They were like the people that were like that person who said that thing, it resonated to, with them in a way that none of the marketing messages could, right? Like mm-hmm. it was just like, it was like how they would express it. I mean, it was like a cheat code. He got to watch this guy doing this insane amount of A-B testing back before, mm-hmm. um, I mean, really growth hacking became a term, but like, um, and we learned from, and we copied that. We copied that from him and continue to do that today. Very smart. Makes makes uh, total sense, but it's you know the kind of legwork that I think so, sometimes people skip. Uh, like I, said, jump I, I think it's easy and simple, but I think most people don't want to do it because like they have their own ideas of what they want to test, or like they think they could write a better yeah. headline. Right. Like it's all like ego issues. Like it's actually very simple. It's like 
find exactly how your customers express it, uh, find some phrases, test those phrases, and those will probably be way better than your product marketing or your CEO, your founder's way of describing it. It's also super painful, right? Like people don't want to hear why people don't like it and they don't want to hear that their idea is wrong, that their Mm -hmm. positioning about it was all wrong. And so you like, Mm -hmm. they prefer to avoid that kind of pain. I tell this story about my sister. Um, My sister has a jewelry company. She sells jewelry to lots of major brands. And, um, and so I told her like, Hey, what, you know, what's your, like, what's the dream outcome here? Because she was like, look, I want to build a business around this. Great. What, like, how do you do that? She's like, well, I got to sell my, my jewelry into like these, like kind of these 10 brands that are really important. And she's like, in these 10 brands, like they, they would love my stuff. I know they would love my stuff. Cause like it fits their aesthetic. It's what they want. I said, okay, well, like here, get it. Let me give you access to zoom info. Like go find the jewelry buyers at those companies and like reach out to them and pitch what like your brand and your jewelry. Mm-hmm. And she was like, no, that doesn't work for my industry. I'm like, what do you mean <laughs> it doesn't work for your industry? She's like, that's, you know, cause when at my job, I get emails like that and I don't, you know, I don't, I don't pay attention to them. I mm-hmm. like delete them or, and I was like, this is just like stuff in your head. Like you're mm-hmm. telling me you have this like great product that that fits great for these brands and you don't want to go tell them about it? Like, how do you think it's going to happen? They're just going to like find you on, they're just going to find you randomly and Mm -hmm. write you a million dollar check for your jewelry. Mm -hmm. Like how you have this great thing, go tell them about it. And there's all this like in your head about like, Oh, I don't want to be that guy who's bothering you about my product. I don't want to be the person who sends an unsolicited email. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want them to tell me that my product is not good enough. It's like, if you could just get out of your own way a little bit, there's so much upside in someone telling you your idea is stupid. Um, It doesn't make sense. This is, these are the reasons why we don't like it. These are the things that I would do differently. Like we already have a product that does that. This is what it is. That learning is just invaluable at the beginning. Anytime I, I meet with um, people who are starting companies or want advice about starting companies, my first, my first sort of advice is just make sure you're on the front lines of the sales process so you can mm-hmm. hear what people are saying about this thing that you built because there's oh, just yeah. nothing I, I, more valuable than that. I totally agree. I think the, you know, the, I said in the beginning that I didn't want to start another company. It was mostly because of this. It's like, because the early days, like, it's exactly this mode of like the first year and a half or so. Even this, even the fifth company in, it doesn't change because you have to expose yourself to that real feedback. And every day, like it was like eating a giant pile of, I won't say what, <laughs> yeah, totally. uh, every day demoralizing, yeah. being told about how awful this was, how, su- how, how this sucked, having people that, you knew for a million years, like wouldn't return an email, wouldn't return a call, wouldn't do like any, you know, like didn't want to hear it just like every single day. But that is the thing that nobody wants to hear. And that's the, that, but that is the key. Like you have to put yourself into those uncomfortable positions if you want to make something and like, it's painful. And like, so we try to institutionalize that at Drift now of just like in terms of creating products and services and offerings at Drift of just like, we have to, we force everyone to expose themselves to either the customer or the prospect or whatever early in the beginning from like in the worst form of just like getting, you know, getting people to um, just really give them raw feedback 
and deal with the pain and start the feedback loop because it's not until yep. you start the feedback loop that you can do anything. And like a Reed Hoffman, you know, founder of LinkedIn had said, I'm paraphrasing, but he had a quote a long time ago that was something like, you know, if like the first version of your product, people don't think sucks, you spend too much time on it. Like you spend too much time, like yeah, refining yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, you don't yeah. say it was yep. ugly. Like you have to be laughed at and we were laughed at over and over again. And so like, <laughs> but that's brutal on the ego. And people yeah, totally. will make excuses just like Henry is saying all day long. Yep. Almost like a rite of passage for the, for the product market fits to happen. Yeah, yep. but most of the stuff that we're talking about, even this thing is like, it's simple. I would say like, it's simple, not easy. Like, it's really simple. It's like the same thing yeah. as like, how do I lose weight? Stop eating, move less. But no totally, it. that's it. Like, yep. That's there's no special else. secret to losing weight. You just <laughs> eat less, exercise yeah. more. That's it. Like, yeah. there's nothing... Yeah. That's all. Yeah. It's easy. Yeah. Uh, the formula is there. You just got to go do it. Yeah. It's so simple, but everyone's looking for hacks and shortcuts and tricks and this and that. And just like, yeah. And, and there, you know, like there basically aren't any, the only one that I've discovered is like learning from other people's failures, but like, because, and not just learning from your own, but that's an easy thing to say and pretty hard to do because most of the time um, it's hard for There's us to, to listen to that. Yeah, and also there's just so many nuances and distinctions yeah. in between like somebody else's totally. experience and yours. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But like listening to those things is so important because it gives you an opportunity to recognize when you're in that you're in that totally. place. Like, oh yeah. shoot, this is that thing he told me about. Mm -hmm. Exactly, because yeah. like that's the thing. Like the advice could be right, but like your context could be totally different, right? And so like, exactly. but there are those like moments where you're like, oh, I'm in the right context now. I'm at the right stage. I'm at the right, that was the thing that Henry said, that that was the thing. All right, I'm yep. not going to do that again. Maybe he's wrong. Maybe he's right. But like the odds are better if like, if I don't just go through and do the same thing, mistake that he did. Yep, totally. Henry, what was the end, uh, end of that story? Did she end up buying the contacts? Or oh, not buying, I guess you didn't tell it to her. Let's maybe just think you would have Yeah, yeah, it was this like really interesting moment where I told her like, um, you can't actually believe, like, cause she also said she's not gonna do like, uh, you know, sort of art shows or jury jewelry shows. I was like, You're, let me just make sure I got this right. Your business plan <laughs> is that like at some point, these people, you have like, you don't have a great web presence. You don't go to jury to art shows that these people are going to show up at your doorstep and like write you a check for your product. Like yeah. that's your business plan. And she was like, well, when you say it like that, like, <laughs> <laughs> it does sound ridiculous. But yeah, it does sound ridiculous. So I think like what it she learned, whether she's like going to, I don't think she's done anything from this. But I think what she did learn was that the barrier between her and growing her business was her. Yep. Like, that's mm -hmm. it. It was just Always. in between her ears. That's it. And, you know, mm -hmm. David, I'm sure you see this all the time. I see it all the time, too. Like, for so many people, like, their biggest challenges in, like, growing and scaling and getting the things that mm -hmm. they want lives, like, primarily in between their own ears. And, totally. like, getting out of their own way is like something mm -hmm. as like, like I think, you know, one of my strengths as a leader is helping people get out of their own way mm -hmm. when they're in their own way. I see big things for a lot of people, oftentimes more than they see for themselves. And like, you know, one of my challenges is to like make sure that they can see that for themselves and help them sort of get there. But so often you see just people self-sabotage themselves into like, um, the places they don't even want to be for themselves. And it's just like, uh, 
mental well-being and wellness and doing mm -hmm. things that get your mind right every day as like Tony Robbins-y as that sounds, like it is so valuable. I've come to really appreciate it. Oh, it's, it's everything. I think why I spend so much time now basically just geeking out on psychology and like thinking about it and just yep. like all those limiting factors, all those things. Like once you start to like, if you're able to like pull yourself out and kind of be like the observer and watch these patterns in people, including yourself, you see like the patterns are so simple, like what they're doing. And we're repeating over and over. It's like a matrix moment. You're like, holy cow, what is happening? They're doing the same thing over. And to bring it back to dating and your example there, I was actually talking to a friend today and she was actually talking about dating. And, uh, and, and uh, anyway, she was talking about like how she wants to meet someone. So I asked her, how many people does she date? And she, zero. So, <laughs> so I had the same conversation. So I'm like, because she doesn't like the dating process. So I was like, so your plan to find this perfect person is for, for them to fall from the heavens above and just yep. like land on your head, you know, in your, in your apartment because you can't leave because we're in COVID now. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't understand this plan. Like, but in her mind, almost like in your sister's mind, like it was a very, before you, the conversation, like very clear, like this is the plan. And it was like, that plan is impossible, right? And sometimes yep. you have to like, and this is the truth for all of us, like wake ourselves up and like shake ourselves and be like, it's, it can't be, you know, that's why I try to reduce everything to the simplest, the simplest uh, terms. Like there's no way that this can be true. Or you forget about all these fancy things that we're working on, but it's amazing. Like I, I always, the one book that I always recommend because I read so many books and people ask me is like, is uh, Peter Drucker's book, uh, which is called Managing Oneself. And it's like, you cannot manage a system, you can't manage anyone else, you can't manage anything until you can manage one yourself. And that book is like a little pamphlet and it costs like $5 on Amazon. But, you know, I read it all the time because it, in it, it just is like basically reinforcing this thing of like all the problems start and stop with you. Like, that's it. That's the only thing. Yeah. And then collectively as a company, like, you know, I always talk about like, there is no, there aren't, there is no like losing to competition or losing because of this or having the, it's just like, there's only people, like it's only us. And we can only either see those things coming and react and do something to them, or we can fail to do so. But no magical competitor or magical like shift is going to come. And that's the reason that we didn't succeed. It was like, it was us collectively missing something that caused us not to succeed. I love that. that. That's an absolute truth. And, uh, you know, it's, it's fascinating. First of all, it's probably why uh, entrepreneurs, it's hard to be a friend of an entrepreneur. You get the brutal <laughs> honesty also when you don't ask for it. You know, it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. there all the time, you know, that I, really, I can really resonate with that. That's why uh, we do podcasts. <laughs> the only time we can talk to each other. Because people my, ask, my, me, you ask all of us all the time, how's it going? It's like, I don't know, I don't know what version they want. I don't know if they want the real yep, version. Totally. I had my, my, my wife's dad made dinner a couple nights ago for us. He made steak and it was like over salted and he was like going to cook steak again for us the next night. Uh, Cause we just bought steaks. And I, I told him, I was like, Hey Mike, like, you know, the steak like a lot of salt on it. Like, so I don't know. Did you do something different? And he was like melt, like he couldn't take it. Like he yeah. couldn't take that type of feedback. And later with my wife, I was like, I don't know. I thought he would want to hear. Like, I thought he would want to know that it was like he's making steaks again tomorrow. I don't know. Well, just I thought he wanted the feedback. She's like, just shut up sometimes. Like, you know, I have to always give people that feedback, but you're so geared for it in your work life. It's like, I thought everybody wants to Henry, hear. This is the, 
This is the key. This is how you know you're an entrepreneur. This is the key entrepreneurial trait, which I always say, like, I have this same problem and it works really well in this context and it's lousy in every other context, right? Like in a, in a social context, like personal context, it's not a good, it's not a good thing to, to have, right? It's not a good trait. No, like we'll meet yeah. new people and I'll be like, what do you do? What are you doing? Who's your boss? What are <laughs> like, how do you go to market? Who are your customers? How do you find new business? And just like, leave me alone. Like, who is this guy? <laughs> and your wife is like, what is wrong with this person? What yeah. is wrong with this person? Um, like, it's a little aggressive. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> cheers to that. Cheers, cheers to that. Yeah, cheers to that. <laughs> this is very funny. Oh my God, I have the same problem. This is only like, if you create your own world, this is a good trait, but like- I don't know. It's not a good trait, in other words. It, Gil, I, you don't, Gil, it doesn't, you don't count because you're Israeli. Like this is cultural. It is it very is cultural. True. <laughs> it is true. In, in, in my culture. When we acquired ZoomInfo, we picked up this like 100 person engineering team in Israel. And everybody was like, oh, you know, culturally, da 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 da. And I was like, no, it's super. It's great. It fits, I fit right in. <laughs> like, totally. No same. <laughs> yeah. Same. I grew up in uh, New York. And so, like, Israelis, Russians, I'm like, bring it. Let's go New York plus this. And entrepreneurial, it's this, this mindset. I'm just like, I thrive in it. But, like, Normal people, like, no. Yeah, Thanks God for that. I think Sorry. that entrepreneurs, uh, that's one of the reasons I, I, I feel yeah. comfortable being a more entrepreneur. I can speak mm -hmm. to entrepreneurs can take it. That's very interesting. Henry, tell us, uh, tell us something that no one knows about you. I don't know if I have a good one. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge Back to the Future fan. I oh, love nice. Back to the Future. Yeah. And I learned the other day that in 2018, the hoverboard got sold. Yeah. It, like it was like a went on auction mm -hmm. and got sold. And I and actually, no, I learned this like four months ago and I like have not gotten over the fact that I wasn't able to buy the hoverboard from back to the future too. So if anybody listening to the podcast knows how I can get my hands on that, I will pay top dollar for the hoverboard from back to the future too. That's, I think the last I heard it's a rapper that owns it. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Really? Tyga. Oh, really? Taiga owns the actual hoverboard? Yeah, search for that online. The last I heard, I, I don't know if it's for that. Yeah. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. I don't have any direct line to Taiga, but I, I could probably <laughs> try to figure out. And he probably really <laughs> likes it. Does. Well, it was, to, it was to match the, I'm assuming it was to match when Nike came out with those like special Sneaker. edition. Sneaker? Sneakers, yeah. 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 So yeah. Cool. David, what about yourself? What is, what is something about you that no one else uh, knows? Yeah, I mean, I, I did so many crazy things. I don't even know where to start. I did uh, graffiti a million years ago, and that was the beginning of like a lot of sneaker culture. Speaking of sneakers, like a lot of that sneaker culture stuff started back then. It was the very beginnings of that. And then even brands like, um, you know, I knew the, the people who had started different brands like Supreme, which just got uh, bought, which is a massive global brand now. But that was a local, you know, down the block kind of spot that um, this guy James started uh, a long time ago. But that was it was such a cool time because it was a time when we were doing graffiti that it was like graffiti. It was like hip hop, you know, like and uh, you like Notorious B.I.G. and Wu-Tang and all that, that kind of era. And then also like um, heavy metal, hardcore music. Like it was just like this potpourri of like crazy art and kind of mixture with technology very long time ago and uh, that's kind of fueled uh, that is who i am that's how i still think about things always stays there 
How about you, Gil? What's one thing we don't know about you? When I was really young, I used to sell uh, firecrackers I imported from France. Because I was seven years old, awesome. I was really young. I would bring in my suitcase seven. a lot of it. And I would sell it for like, my brother was my VC and my family. I would raise money from them, like a hundred bucks at a time. And I would really make like, like five, I would make a huge, huge return on it because I, I went to school with a bunch of rich kids uh, in, my, in my elementary school. <laughs> That's why Israel is the land of entrepreneurs. Yep. <laughs> Gentlemen, I uh, really, really enjoyed uh, having you both here. It was really fun and also very insightful. Thank you very much for a good podcast. I wish you a wonderful weekend and, and thank you very much again. Thank you. Bye, guys. Thank Cheers. you. Thanks again for joining us. I hope that you enjoyed today's discussion and will tune in again. Find all of the B2B Category Creators episodes at metadata.io. And if you have any feedback, topics, or would like to be a guest on the show, please reach out. Please reach out.